Amen. Good morning. I bring you greetings from the Jacksonville Baptist Association. For those of you who don't have a clue what that is, basically there are uh, over 200 churches in the Jacksonville metropolitan area that kind of partner together to do local missions. And what I work with is I work with those who are called to plant churches. So I work with uh, churches that, that want to multiply, and I work with individuals upon whom God has placed a call to go and plant churches. And I work to kind of resource, mentor, encourage, equip, those types of things with those guys. And there's a desperate need for more churches uh, in the Jacksonville area. You may not realize this, Jacksonville is actually the fastest growing city in the state of Florida for the last 10 years. Uh, Clay County is going to be the fastest growing county in the state of Florida for the next two years. And a lot of these areas where the growth is coming is underserved by local churches. And so one of the things we are striving to do is to plant churches. And God is uh, answering our prayers. He's called a number of people to plant churches. We actually have 12 couples in the pipeline right now who are going through assessment and getting prepared to launch churches either towards the end of this year or next year. So if you'd ever love to learn more about church planting or how you could get plugged into something like that, I'd love to talk with you. And you can uh, reach me through Brother John or uh, through anybody here uh, on staff at the church, they can uh, get you my contact information. It's great to be here today. It's a real blessing. We love Fort Caroline Baptist Church. My wife and I are currently, I'm ser currently serving as the interim at First Baptist Church Middleburg. I've been there since uh, February, so I haven't been able to visit as much recently, but uh, we were able to be here several times in the fall, and you were just a tremendous blessing to us when we did. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you, and I hope you do, I want you to open them up or turn them on, get your phone out, find First Peter chapter 2, which is our text for this morning. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about one of my favorite movies. I'm a movie buff, and I love sports, so movies about sports, that just really scratches a special itch with me. And uh, so one of my favorite movies is a movie called Coach Carter. And Coach Carter is about uh, this... Uh, guy who was a great high school basketball player and later in his life now he's a sporting goods store owner and he's asked by the principal of a high of his high school to return to his school and take over this broken down team with a history of losing and individualism and so he thinks about it a little bit and finally he says okay I'll do it I'll come and be your coach and so he inherits this team that just has a history of losing they're, the sum of their parts is, is just, uh, it's not much. They're, they're, they're very individualistic. They're always fighting with one another, and they, they can never seem to get out of their own way. And so Coach Carter decides he's going to change the culture of the team, and so he lays down the law when he arrives. He says, listen, there's going to be a, a strict dress code, and you're going to go to class, and you're going to make an effort in class, and you're going to be respectful to your teachers, and you're going to be respectful to each other, and you're going to give an amazing effort every single Single day in practice. And so some of the players, they kind of begrudgingly do this, but there's one player in particular, his name is Timo. He says, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm out. He quits. Well, you know, teenagers make decisions all the time that they don't think through fully. I did that a lot the whole time I was a teenager. Well, about three days later, Timo realizes, wait a second, something special is happening with this basketball team. I really want to be back on this team. And so he goes to Coach Carter, uh, you know, hat in hand. Hey, I would really like to be on the team. What can I do to get back on the team? And Coach Carter says, you can be back on the team, but you have to do 2,500 push-ups and run 1,000 suicide drills, which is basically uh, the equivalent of six trips up and down the court. 1,000 suicide drills, 2,500 push-ups by the end of this week. And Timo sets out to do it and gets down on his hands, starts knocking out push-ups. 
It takes a break, runs suicides. Every day at practice, he's there. Push-ups, suicides. An assistant coach is tracking his project, process, uh, his progress. And at the end of the day, end of the week, Coach Carter asks the assistant coach, he's like, did he make it? No. Coach Carter says, Timo, you have failed. Leave the gym. You are off the team. I mean, and he had given a Herculean effort. He gave everything he had, but it was an impossible task. And he drops his head. He's crushed. He doesn't want to quit. He doesn't want to leave. And at that moment, another player walks over, gets down on his hands, and starts to do push-ups. He says, Coach, I'll do them for him. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, well, you, you taught us. He said, you said when, when one triumphs, we all triumph. When one fails, we all fail. I'll do his push-ups. And in that moment, uh, another teammate gets down on his hands and starts doing push-ups. And then a couple of teammates begin to run suicides up and down the court. And as they began to come alongside Timo, this group of individuals was transformed into a team. because they cared about one another more than they cared about themselves. Now they had a common goal. There's a reason that sports movies and movies about team and, and that type of thing are, are special to me and special to a lot of people, and it really doesn't have a lot to do with a love of sports. And I do love sports. I grew up playing sports. I, was a, I played basketball in high school. I haven't always been shaped like a basketball. So, you know, I, I, was, you know, I love sports movies. But, but that's not why sports movies tend to resonate with us so deeply. The real reason they resonate so deeply with us is because God has wired all of us to be a part of a team. Every single person in this room, whether you realize it or not, you have this deep, innate desire to belong to something greater than yourself. God's put that there. It's one of the reasons why we gravitate towards teams. It's also one of the reasons why young men from broken homes and in underprivileged neighborhoods will gravitate towards gangs if there's not a strong family life, right? They have this innate desire to want to belong to something bigger, to share their lives with others and have others share their lives with us, with them. That's how God's wired all of us. And he's wired us that way because that's his plan. It's not just to save us and leave us as individuals, but to save us and to make us part of his team, which is the local church, the family of faith that is the body of Christ. When you study the Bible, one of the, the things you learn is that the gospel not only saves sinners, but it transforms us and empowers us to live as one as a family of faith. And that's our big idea this morning. The gospel not only saves us, it empowers us to live as a team. And, and this, this theme runs throughout all of the scriptures, pri primarily in the New Testament, but it's especially prevalent in the text that we're going to look at today, Second Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 12. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says through the apostle Peter. The Bible says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and, all, and envy and all slander. 
Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak up against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the gospel saves sinners, but it empowers us, it transforms us to live as a team. And as we walk through this passage of scripture, there are three ways that God empowers us and enables us to live as the team that he wants us to be, to live as the church that he wants us to be. First, we see that God empowers us to grow in grace. Look again at verses one through three. Paul says, uh, or Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the first thing Peter says, if you're going to be the team that God wants you to be, you've got to learn to put away the old self. So he starts by naming these sins, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. If you think about those sins for a moment, you notice that all five of them have something to do with relationships, right? If we're going to be a team, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, if Fort Caroline is going to, is going to reflect the glory of God to the larger community of Jacksonville, we've got to put these things away. We've got to be done with them, get rid of them. And, and these are the sins that undermine relationships and keep us from sharing our lives and living as one. And when he says put away, he's not talking about putting them in the back of the closet, right? I've got a few shirts that my wife's been after me to throw away for a while. You know, and, and, and I'll buy a shirt and inevitably I'll get some kind of stain on it because I'm, I'm always messier than I think I'm going to be, Right? I eat barbecue for lunch, or I wear it out in the garage to work on a project. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to make a mess. It'll be fine. And then before I know it, I've got this, this little spot. And, and I'll get most of the spot out trying to, you know, so my wife won't tell, you know, say I told you so, right? I'll get, I'll get most of the spot out, and you just barely be able to see it. So I'll put that back in the closet, and I'll be like, oh, I'll wear that on a day when it, it doesn't matter if there's a little spot on my shirt. Because I just can't bring myself to throw it away. That, that's not what 
Peter saying to do here? When he says put away the old self, he's not talking about take that, that stained shirt that you think you can get some more use out of and put it in the back of the closet and save it for a, 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 an appropriate day. He's saying get rid of it completely. So it wasn't too long ago I was wearing a shirt and I had this really nice gel pen in my pocket that decided it wanted to malfunction. And I, 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 all of a sudden I had this giant blue ink spot on the pocket of my shirt. There was no saving that shirt. Guess where that shirt went? It went in the trash. Right? I, didn't, I didn't try to save it. I didn't try to redeem it. I threw it away. Never to be seen again. That is the language that Peter's using here. The problem is we're all sinners. And the flesh loves to be malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and envious and slanderous. We love to tear others down because in doing so, we feel like we're building ourselves up. Peter says you can't do that anymore. You've got you to throw those things away. Put them in the trash take it out the side of the road, never to be seen again. And the way you do that is by looking to the cross and looking to the gospel, which leads us to the next verse. In verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So the, the, the first way God empowers us to grow in grace is by telling us to get rid of the sin, but now he tells us to pursue the gospel, to pursue God's word. The gospel is what enables us to grow in grace. So it's not just a matter of leaving behind a bunch of stuff. We've actually got to pursue something new. The pure spiritual milk of the gospel. What are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? We're talking about the good news that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners, every single one of us. We have sinned, we've transgressed the law of God, and we've fallen short of his perfect standard. You say, Chris, I don't know if I'm a sinner. I'm not sure about that. Well, just ask your spouse, or your parents, or your children. One of them will confirm that you have, in fact, sinned at some point in the future. And God's standard is at some point in the past, and you'll do it again at some point in the future. And God's standard is perfection. The Bible actually says that if we transgress the law of God at one point, we're guilty of all of it. So one sin is enough to separate us from God. But God doesn't want us to be separated from him, and so he gives us his only son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus leaves the glory and the splendor of heaven, the Bible says, and he comes to earth and he lives a sinless life. And so for 33 years, he keeps God's law perfectly. He never sinned in word or thought or deed. And then around the age of 33, Jesus is arrested, He's illegally tried, and he's sent to the cross. He dies the death of a criminal. And it's significant that he dies because the Bible teaches that the penalty for sin is death and eternal separation from God. So the, the one person in the history of the world that didn't deserve to die actually went to the cross and died. And the Bible teaches that when he died on the cross, he bore the penalty for your sin and mine. The wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve, was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered, and he died, and he was buried. And three days later, the Bible says that he rose from the grave. 
And when he rose from the grave, he affirmed several important truths. Number one, he affirmed that he was, in fact, innocent of all the charges that had been laid against him. They put him to death as a criminal. God brought him back to life. He's not guilty. Number two, it confirmed everything that Jesus ever said about himself. I mean, Jesus said a lot of things in the Gospels, right? And some of them are absolutely unbelievable. But the most unbelievable thing that he said was, hey, if you kill me three days later, I'm coming back, right? Now, any of us could say that, right? I mean, I could walk around saying, hey, if you kill me, I'd come back to life. But Jesus actually did it. So the most unbelievable thing he said during his earthly ministry came true, and that means we can believe everything else he said as well, including when he said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. But the third thing that is uh, affirmed with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is that God has the power over life and death. What does that mean? Well, it means that if God can fix dead he can fix you, right? If he can fix dead, he can fix your marriage. If he can fix dead, he can fix your family. He can fix your finances. He can fix your church. He can fix your small group. He can, he can help you overcome your anxiety or your depression. It doesn't matter what you face. God is all-powerful and able to fix that situation. And he does it through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way we appropriate the gospel is by repenting of our sin believing that Jesus died in our place upon the cross, and asking God to save us. And the Bible says that if we do that, this great exchange takes place. God takes all of my sin, places it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ as he suffers on the cross, and he takes Jesus Christ's perfect obedience to the law, and he applies it to my account. And so what is true of Jesus is now true of me. What God said of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he now says of me, right? So God's not looking down from heaven saying, I, oh, I'd love Chris so much more if he would just be a little better husband, if he wasn't so sloppy around the house, if he was a, a, a better missional strategist, if he was a better preacher, I'd love him so much more. No, that's not what God says. What God says is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God couldn't love me any more than he does right now. And the same is true for every single one of us because of the gospel. If you are in Christ, God's not disappointed with you. He's overjoyed with you. He loves you. He is thrilled with you. And the reason Peter points us back to the gospel is because when we remember the gospel, when we remember grace, it puts us on a level playing field with everyone else and it empowers us to live as a team. I'm not better than anyone. I need God's grace just as much as everyone and so do you. So the way that we're going to become a team is by learning to leave behind the sin. Those very things that put Jesus on the cross, I need to let go of, I need to get rid of, and I need to look to the gospel because the more I look to the gospel, the more my heart, my soul, my mind is transformed to be like Christ. And notice what uh, ver uh, verse 3 says. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I would say from, from this verse, we would take the idea that we need to plan to grow. This is a rhetorical statement in the original language. It actually assumes a positive answer. So basically what Peter is saying here is, since you've been saved, you need to grow up. 
because of what Christ has done for you, you need to pursue grace. You need to grow as a Christian because as you grow as a Christian, you'll be empowered to be the teammate and we will be empowered to become the team that God wants us to be. Think about the, think about the basketball team in the movie Coach Carter. When did they become a team? When they quit focusing on self and they started living for each other. Well, as Christians, as we quit focusing on self, as we begin to live for each other, it actually empowers us to live for the Lord. And you're going to see in a moment that that's when God begins to do a significant work in your midst. So first, God empowers us to grow in grace. That is how he transforms us into a team. But as we continue through the passage of Scripture, we see that God enables us to live as a people. So first, I've got to do the individual work. Now I've got to start living for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice how the passage continues, verse 4. As you come to him in the gospel, uh, him being Jesus Christ, who is the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is Jesus Christ. He is the chosen, precious cornerstone the most important stone in the church verse 7 so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word they don't believe the gospel as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see that? Notice how he describes Jesus at the beginning, a, a chosen, precious cornerstone. And then what does he say about us as we come to Jesus? We are a chosen, precious people. What's true of Jesus is now true for us. The love the Father has for the Son, he has for his children. And so as we reflect on this and work our way through these verses, we see how God enables us to live as his people. First, he enables us to worship through service. We're a holy priesthood, verse 5, called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Those spiritual sacrifices are the brothers and sisters in Christ that make up the church of Christ, using their spiritual gifts to advance the kingdom of God. And whether you realize it or not, the moment you became a Christian, God not only filled you with the Spirit of Christ, but he gifted you with spiritual gifts that were intended to be used in the service of your brothers and sisters in Christ, in reaching those who are far from God, and in bringing glory to the Father. So the question of the morning is, how are you doing that? How are you using your gifts to serve the kingdom? Are you plugged into a ministry? Do you belong to a small group where you're sharing your life with others? Where you're being an encouragement? You're praying? Those are the things that God calls all of us to do, to worship through service. Well, the second way that we, we live as his people is we walk in holiness. To walk in holiness means to live differently. 
The word holy means to be separate. And if you, if you study the usage in the Old Testament, uh, one of the things you see is it means to be separate from sin, set apart from sin. But that's only half of it. Now, Baptists are really good. We're really good at talking about uh, being set apart from sin, right? So, you know, I, I, I was saved in a, a smaller, very traditional church, and to be holy meant you don't, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go with girls who do, right? So we're just going to avoid all these socially unacceptable sins, and we're not going to hang out with those who engage in these socially acceptable sins, right? And so, I mean, I, I was part of a very legalistic church. You didn't go to rated R movies, and there were people in our church that wouldn't even go to like a blockbuster video. This was a long time ago. They, they wouldn't go to a blockbuster video because they were worried someone would think they were checking out a rated R movie. I mean, they had this big, long list of, of don'ts that you couldn't do, right? And so there were, these, there were these socially unacceptable sins that we avoided, like the plague, and then there were a bunch of other things that we added on to it to avoid it as well. And it was a really flawed understanding of holiness, all right? Now listen, holiness does mean to be separated from sin. We do turn away from the things of the world that are contrary to the Word of God. But holiness is much more than that. Holiness is not just being set apart from sin, it means being set apart for God. So it's apart from sin and toward the purposes of God. To be a holy people means that we've got to be a people that genuinely are concerned with why God created us and how God wants to use us to advance his kingdom. We're a holy priesthood, a holy nation. Once we were a, a, a group of fallen, separate individuals. But through the work of the gospel, God is empowering us to live as one. So we worship through service, we walk in holiness, we, walk, we witness to his greatness. Notice what he says in verse 9. Contrasting us with those who disobey the word. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, it's a purpose statement. Here's why you are these things, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God saved you to serve. God saved you to share. To share the good news of Jesus Christ. To testify of the greatness of God with those who are far from God. And that leads to our final point. So first, God empowers us to grow in grace. He saves us as broken, fallen individuals, but he doesn't leave us that way. He begins to help us grow in Christ's likeness. Then he enables us to live as his people. He shows us how to do it. Third, he exhorts us to live on mission. Look at the last two verses, and we'll read verse 10 again. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to obtain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Three ways we can enhance the way we live on mission. Number one, we need to remember that once we were far from God. Once you were not a people, but now you're a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
We have to constantly reflect upon the fact that we have been saved by grace. And this not of ourselves, it was a gift of God. Not the, results of, not the result of work so that no one may boast. You didn't save yourself, God saved you. And did it, did it because he loved you. He didn't save you because you were special. He didn't save you because of who you were. He saved you in spite of who you were. And so when we look around at the communities that surround us in the greater Jacksonville area, it should motivate us to go to them and share the grace that transformed our lives. You know, I, I, I talk with people occasionally. I got a lot of friends down in South Florida and a lot of people that are ministering up in the the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest and in Toronto, and they're like, man, what's it like doing ministry in the Bible Belt? You know, like Jacksonville's kind of like the buckle of the Bible Belt, right? Y'all got churches everywhere. Well, yeah, we do have, we have a lot of churches in Jacksonville, a lot of churches. But do you know what the largest religious group in Jacksonville is? It's the nuns. Latest demographic research, uh, they, they ask people, what, what's your religious preference? What's your religious background? Almost 700,000 people said, I don't have one. I'm a nun. N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, like the hat and the black robe. No, they're nuns. No religious preference at all. That's over half our population. We might be in the Bible Belt. That might mean there are a lot of building, church buildings around, but we don't have home field advantage here. We're not surrounded by people that understand the gospel. We're surrounded by people that need to hear the gospel. And we're not going to be motivated to go to them unless we remember where we were apart from Christ's intervention in our life. So number one, remember that you used to be far from God. Number two, remember God has given you a mission. Verse 11, beloved, you, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So uh, this passage so far has told us that we need to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us and we need to live in a way that supports that we, the, the message that we're proclaiming. Remember, God's given you a mission. So I want you to think about this. We think about how were you saved? You were saved by grace, right? Not by works. But how else were you saved? You were saved because someone shared the gospel with you. Might have been your parents who were dragging you to church, kicking and screaming when you were a seven-year-old, and a Sunday school teacher shared the gospel with you. Might have been like me. I asked a girl out on a date. Her mom wouldn't let me take her anywhere but church. I said, when do you have church again? She said, well, actually, we have church tonight. It was a Tuesday. Who knew? I went to church. They had an evangelist. He spit and screamed for an hour. But at the end of his message, he shared the gospel. And I sat in the back row on the right, two rows from the back, didn't listen to a thing he said until the end of his ser the sermon. And I heard the gospel. And that night, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ might have been someone gave you a tract and you read the gospel. But the point was, you're a Christian today because someone labored to share with you. 
Someone invested uh, in a church that could afford to hire a preacher, that could afford to build a building. Uh, someone partnered with a bunch of other Christians to start a Sunday school class. But you're a Christian because someone else shared and someone else pursued you. And God pursued you through them. And that is how Christianity has advanced for the last 2,000 years. And we want to make sure it doesn't stop with us. God's given you a mission. Finally, just remember people are watching. Verse 12 is actually one of the most powerful verses in this entire passage. Here it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So let's just stop there. In the Old Testament, you had Jews and Gentiles. Jews were the people of God. Gentiles were all these other races and nations outside the kingdom of God. There were, there were two races in God's economy, Jews and Gentiles. In the New Testament, you have a bunch of Gentiles that are becoming Christians. Peter is borrowing language from the Old Testament. Now he's saying those who are outside the kingdom of God are Gentiles. He, he, he's not using that to refer to us. In one sense, we're Gentiles. So we don't have a Jewish ethnic background. But here he's saying among the Gentiles, he's talking about those who are far from God those who haven't responded to the gospel, those who haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He tells us to live a certain way amongst those who are far from God because they're watching. They're watching how you treat your wife how you treat your husband, how you treat your kids. They're watching how you invest in the ministry of the local church. They're watching how you respond to a crisis, how you uh, manage your money. They're watching how you treat your neighbors. And as they're watching, if they know you're a Christian, they're evaluating your behavior, and they're asking whether or not this meshes with the words that you preach. John 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus, right before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for the disciples. And then he prayed for those who would believe through the preaching of the disciples. That's you, that's me. And, and, and one of the things he prayed was, he prayed that we would be one as Jesus and the Father were one. He prayed for us to have unity, to live as a team, to live as a, a people. And then he said, why? Because as the world sees we are one, they will know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, our living as a team confirms the truthfulness of the gospel. It gives more power to the message that we preach. So, we've been talking about the church being a team today. I want to ask you a question. Are you a teammate? Are you, are, you, are you invested? Are you plugged in? I remember when I was a kid, we used to watch sports all the time. But I think I was 14 or 15 before I actually saw the second half of a football game on TV. Because I would start watching sports, and then I would have to go play sports. So football was on TV. By halftime, my brothers and I were out in the backyard or out in the street playing football. Basketball was on TV. 
By the second half, we're outside playing basketball. But baseball's on TV. By the, second, by the fifth inning, we're outside playing baseball. Why? Right? Why? Because while we love to watch sports, we, love to, we wanted to be in the game. It was more fun to be in the game than to watch the game. I wonder if there's some folks here this morning, you're tired of watching, and you're ready to get in the game. You're ready to join a ministry team, get plugged into a small group, begin to make a difference in your community of faith so your community of faith can make a difference in your community. If you're here this morning, and that's where you are, let me encourage you to go to fcbc.life and look at a number of ways that you can begin to share your life with your brothers and sisters in Christ, where God can use you to make a difference in the lives of those around you. Say, so Chris, I don't even know what to do. Hey, go to fcbc.life. we got folks that can come alongside you and help you find your place of service, help you take your next step. Let me pray for you, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you and thank you in the name of Jesus for this opportunity to gather. I thank you for this great church and the work you're doing for the, through this church, and we pray even now that your Holy Spirit would empower us to say yes to all that you're calling us to do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.